Fakalofala Hiatu. Kiorana. Huan Yin. Malo Elele. Dobredoidovte. Kiora. Welcome to Waho Putong, our Heritage Talks 2023, a series of expert talks that provide valuable insight into our personal and shared heritage. Today's talk is on Pacific explorer and writer Louis Beck. Although relatively unknown in the 21st century, he was at the turn of the 19th the most prolific, significant and internationally renowned Australian-born writer in the South Pacific region. He is often described as Australia's equivalent of Robert Louis Stevenson. Join us today with expert Allegra Marshall as she helps us to learn about his life and times and discusses his writing and legacy. If after listening to this talk, you wish to read one of his works, simply click on the link in the description below to view the collection held by Auckland Libraries. Thanks for the opportunity to come and talk and also on Saturday. Um, and thanks for those who have come along today. So I'm from Australia. I'm from Sydney, as you can tell from my accent, I say six. And, uh, but I've been spending a lot of time in the last few years in Tahiti which is my second home. Um, been going there for over 40 years, so um, I'm getting more of a presence over there now and hover back to Sydney when I need to. But Sydney's where Louis Beck's buried, and it's, it's in the cemetery near where I live, actually, in Bondi, but he was born in um, Port Macquarie. So I'm going to be telling you a little bit about him, um, his life and adventures, his books, um, and also the fact that we've got a Louis Beck Society now, which we formed in 2019, which is very exciting. So I've got some membership forms here if anyone's interested in, in joining. So um, Louis Beck, has anyone heard of him? Anyone in the room heard of him? No? Okay. He's, he's not that well known. He's becoming more well known because of the society and the fact that we've got a lot of important people um, involved now, including a professor from um, Queensland who's writing a, a biography, a second biography. So it was the first biography written about him in 1975 by a guy called A. Grove Day. And uh, we've got a new one probably going to be out in the next couple of years, which we've all been um, feeding into. So here's Louis Beck. He was a good-looking guy. He um, had a droopy moustache, which was a sort of a fashion of the time. That's from a photo taken of him in Jamaica, where he spent six months or so in the 19, early 1900s. That's him again without his hat, trademark hat. And that's a, a studio portrait from London where he, he lived for a while and married and uh, did a few interesting things over there. So just different photos of him. You can find them on the internet. They're, a lot of these are from the National Library of Australia. So Louis Beck was actually not his real name. His real name was George Lewis Beck. Um, and they called him Louis in the Islands, L-U-I. And we, we think that it's because he admired Robert Louis Stevenson that he preferred to call himself Louis rather than George. Uh, so his headstone's got um, his proper name on it, but all his books are in the name of Louis Beck, not George Louis Beck. You won't find anything if you look for George. So he wrote 35 books over a period of 20 years, 1894 until the year before he died in 1913. Um, he wrote after he did all his travelling. He was too busy travelling to sit down and write. Um, and then when he needed money, he decided to write books and met a few different people that, who worked for the Bulletin in Sydney and who um, put him in the right direction. So 20 books in 35 years. There's a couple that he collaborated with an Englishman, um, Walter Jeffries, but um, he wrote books about the bounty and um, different topics. 
So a lot of people said, you know, uh, this is quite, it's a bit relevant to me as well. It was impossible to keep Louis Beck at home. That was a, a guy called Earnshaw. And I, I suppose I'm a bit like that too. I'm pretty restless. I just want to see as much as I can. Um, another person quoted him as being the Rudyard Kipling of the Pacific. And then Arthur Grove Day, who was his biographer, said that he, Louis actually dreamt of becoming a pirate. So um, he did have a few adventures with um, one of them. Okay, so there's a recent book that's come out by Nicholas Halter, who's from the ANU, and he, he's quoted Louis Beck as being the most fam famous travel writer of the late, late 19th century in colonial Australia. But our new biographer, Christopher Spicer, says that he actually um, expands that, uh, the claim that he was the most famous tra Australian travel writer of his time, so he emphasises it more as being um, a more important role than what Nicholas Halt has actually quoted in his book. So who am I? I'm Allegra Marshall from Sydney. That's a photo of Tahiti. I love the tropics. I've been going to the tropics since I was a young girl because I don't like the cold weather. Um, I've got a, all, he, all of Louise Beck's books, first editions, at home. That's my, one of my bookshelves at home. Um, that's from the inside cover of one of his books, The Adventures of Louis Blake. And it all started at Waverley Cemetery in 1988. I'd been already collecting books on the Pacific for quite a long time and I stumbled across a book at a, a second-hand bookshop by Louis Beck and I'd never heard of him so I picked it up and had a, had a little read and in the introduction it said that he was buried at Waverley Cemetery. So I'm thinking, oh that's interesting, that's just around the corner from where I live. So I went there and um, finally found it. That's it there. The, whoops, Sorry, I've fast-forwarded to it's a bit far, your zapper's faster than mine. Okay, so that's um, the grave when I discovered it. It was hard to find it. You could hardly see the headstone. It was completely swamped over. That's a few, few years later um, after having weeded it a few times. As you can see, it's on a... I don't know if anyone knows Waverley Cemetery in Sydney, but it's on a, on a hill. It's one of the more older cemeteries in Sydney. Same style um, headstones as Rookwood which were the headstones that came from Devonshire Street, which was Sydney's first cemetery. So it's on the top of a hill, um, sectioned out in the Anglican section. And that's me, back in 1991, going there once a month to, to weed it. And that's another one a few years later. So at one stage, I plant, planted nasturtiums and stuff like that. So I still go there whenever I'm in Sydney. But we've had a few things happening there. We've got a new headstone now. So I'll show you a photo of that in a second. So who was Louis Beck? He was a sailor, an adventurer, a storyteller, a very good storyteller. He was independent, authentic, because he said what he thought, and he was very restless. He didn't like to stay in one place for too long, but it didn't stop him from living in some of these islands for longer periods rather than just floating through. He watched, learnt, and wondered, and that actually comes through in all his stories, if you read them. Um, he really observed the people of the islands, and because he lived there for a while, he understood their intricacies and their social um, ways of going about things, and his books are really good. So, born in Port Macquarie in June 1855, um, and he died at 58 in 1913, around the same sort of... He was a friend of Henry Lawson's, and they all sort of died around the same age. They all had the same problems. They all had a few too many drinks every now and then. He was a seventh and last son of Frederick and Matilda, who were married in Sydney. They were, they were from England. Um, and there were t 12 children in, in all, in total. Um, one of his sisters did some interesting things too. She married a, a, a harpist from Italy. 
So a couple of them did some interesting things. There's a family ring with a, um, a, uh, a pheasant, and that belongs to someone in the family. It's, um, so the family, the Beck family, we've done some research back, back into the olden days, and it looks like they were a pretty um, significant family back in England. So demographics, um, Sydney, the population, just to put things into context, the population of Sydney in 1840 was around 54,000. Now we're up to 6 million. Um, and in 1880, when he was sort of floating around writing, starting to think about writing books, there was 221,000 people. In Port Macquarie, it was much smaller. Port Macquarie is more known for being a convict town. Um, there's a very nice library there with um, a glass floor where you can actually see some of the convict remnants. And they had a much smaller population, like 900 people, um, which, which was 2,500 comparatively to, to Sydney in, in, in 1980. So a very small place. So there was convicts, but before the convicts there was a whole lot of Aborigines that were living there. And there were Aborigines still around when Louis would have been living there. And I think he probably observed them when he went to the beach and watched all the ships going past. There's a lot of shipwrecks on that coast near Port Macquarie. So it was a convict settlement between 1820 and 1830. Um, there was sugarcane. It's primarily an agricultural area. Um, and it's known for its maritime history, um, the lighthouse, the whalers. There's 20 shipwrecks around Port Macquarie. So Louis um, would have known about all of them and heard people talking about them, and he would have probably got interested in sailing from, from them, we surmise. So Port Macquarie, that's the beach um, near where he lived. He lived just across the road um, in this house here, which is basically not there anymore. See the, the cars of the time? It's, um, it's a fantastic photo, isn't it? So that's the house where he used to live from the front. That's where he was born. And um, that's the building that's there now. So we're trying to get a plaque put here um, at the front, a brass plaque to say that Louis Beck lived here. So between 1855 and 1866, um, when he was from the time that he was born until he was about 11, he was baptised there at the St Thomas Church of England. The church was built by convicts and the population was about 900, like I said before. That's his baptism certificate, um, which is readily available on New South Wales BDMs. That's the church um, from back way, well, not long after it was built. That's it a few years later. And that's a photo that I took of it now. Um, in, it's been rebuilt a little bit, preserved, and it's quite nice there. So milestones between 1867 and 1880. At the age of 12, the family moved to Hunters Hill in Sydney. So Hunters Hill was a pretty exclusive area. A lot of French people live there, so there's still a lot of French names around in the streets. And stonemasons came from Mauritius in, in Hunters Hill. He attended the Ford Street Model School at Observatory Hill which was a little boat ride away, and that still exists as well. We've gone there on a bit of a pilgrimage, one, and one of the relatives and myself. Um, at age of 14, he went to San Francisco with his brother, Vernon, who was a couple of years older than him. They stowed away, basically, and um, he, they, he worked as a clerk. He was quite um, educated, even though he didn't finish his schooling, and he was away from Australia for almost two years, but it gave him, gave him a bit of a flavour for what it was like to travel around. Um, he stowed away then to Samoa at age of 17, and he lived there for almost two years, and he was a bookkeeper. So he um, got a bit of a flavour for what, what it was like to live in on, on an island. In 1873, um, he was only 18, he met Bully Hayes. I don't know if anyone knows Bully Hayes, but Joan Drew has written a book about him. A lot of people have written books about Bully Hayes. 
So there's no point hiding it. Um, he did stow away with, well, he didn't stow away. He actually went on the Leonora with Bully Hayes. He was commissioned by Bully Hayes to take it um, to the Carolines. And he worked as, a, as the supercargo on the Leonora, which was a very famous ship. So it sank um, in March 1874, and he lived in Kusay, Cosray, Strongs Island for seven months. So that's what I was trying to say before about Louis Beck. Like, he didn't go to... He went to Samoa, yes, and, and Robert Louis Stevenson was there too. But Louis Beck went to islands that no-one had ever been to before, especially no white people. He went to the Carolines, he went to the Marshalls. He did actually go to Guam, where he had a, a, a daughter. Um, but he lived in a lot of these islands that a lot of people haven't heard of. Kusay, Cosray, Strongs Island, um, and then the Gilbert and Ellis Islands, which are Tuvalu and Kiribati now. So seven months he lived there, enough time to sort of get a feel for, for what it's like to live on a really, really small island. In 1875, he returned to Australia and went to Townsville and worked at the bank. And he remained in Australia on and off until about 1880. So that's a photo of him. He's somewhere in the photo. I don't know which one he is, but... He's in this photo. I don't think that a boy who had travelled all across the Pacific and lived on Cosray and Samoa would have really been happy in a business suit working for a bank, but he did what he needed to do to earn a bit of money. So the tropics. Okay, so tropics um, fascinated Louis and he wanted to see as much as he could in the time period that he had. So they're typical tropic views of what it would have been like when he was travelling. So the ships, the schooners, the two-mast schooners, you know, the, the coconuts, the beaches, the fishing. The fishing was done with the, the, the sticks or with rocks. Beautiful women, and he was a good-looking guy, so he, he was very popular in the islands. He had a, many, many children. Beautiful women who would have attracted him and, and the dancing and the culture and, and so forth. But his main travel focus area was, of course, the Pacific. So that's the greater Pacific Ocean. Then we zoom in to um, the area that Louis travelled in and wrote about. And then, of course, we've got the Polynesian Triangle, where you've got Easter Island, Hawaii and New Zealand. And that was the northern part of that was where he focused and, and to the left of the Gilbert and Ellis and Caroline, the Marshalls. So there are all those islands there. So he actually he did more than the, um, the Polynesian Triangle. So we've got... If, if you don't know, um, we've got Polynesia, Polynesian Triangle. We've got Melanesia, which is more like um, Fiji, um, New Caledonia, Papua New Guinea, the Aborigines, and Micronesia, which is the, the northern islands, which I was just saying, Marshalls and so forth. And all of that together is called Oceania. So that's a really good trivial pursuit question. Okay, so that's pretty much where, where Louis was travelling. Uh, he didn't go to Easter Island as far as I know, but he did actually write about going to Tahiti, but... I, he never actually went there. I've never found any, any records of him actually arriving there. So you need to sort of understand a little bit about the primary trading routes to understand about travelling in that, that time frame. So the travel was primarily from Sydney to San Francisco, or Sydney to San Francisco and vice versa via New Zealand, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, the Marquesas, Raiatea, French Polynesia, Hawaii, and sometimes the ships detoured to Valparaiso where the Picpus... Um, religious people were based. Um, they had a very big presence in French Polynesia as well. And then London via Cape Horn. But there was a train that people could get from New York through to San Francisco. Then, of course, there was the Panama Canal, but that was way before... Louis Beck was way before the Panama Canal. So, again, two-mast schooners. They're the sort of ships that Louis would have been travelling on. 
And Sydney back in the 1890s was like that, Circular Quay, where it was a, a very, very busy port, ships coming and going every couple of hours. We've got very good documentation of that from various sources. So 1880 to 1895, he travelled extens extensively. He went, um, as I said before, Cosray, Strong's Island, Gilbert and Ellis Islands, Majuro, which was definitely not on anyone's radar. Not that they, that a lot of people didn't really understand where it was. Caroline and Lyme Islands, he popped into New Caledonia for a short period, New Hebrides, where supposedly, and New Britain, where he supposedly met um, DeRace, Captain DeRace, who was very, um, not very popular because of the fact that he took all the people from Europe and tried to colonise them in New Britain and it failed. The DeRace expedition, that's a, quite an interesting topic. Niue, he lived in Niue for about a year, um, and then he floated in and out of Tonga, Samoa, went to Lord Howe Island as well. That was when he was really young with his parents. Um, he was influenced by a lot of different writers, um, mainly Robert Louis Stevenson, which is why we think that he took on the name. But Herman Melville, Mark Twain, all those authors that wrote extensively about adventures and travel and um, even the poet Rupert Brooke, who was um, more a poet than a writer, who lived in Tahiti a little bit too, and Henry Lawson, who was his friend, who um, is also buried at Waverley Cemetery. However, Louis also influenced other writers. He influenced people like James Norman Hall and Charles Nordhoff. They were Americans that lived in Tahiti and wrote a whole lot of books about the bounty and so forth. Robert Dean Frisbee, who lived on Puka Puka, he wrote many, many books. James Michener, um, Somerset Maughan, Frank Clune, more recent, and then Arthur Grove Day, who was based in, in Honolulu. So the first story that Louis published was called Tiss in the Blood, and that was published on the 6th of May in 1893 in the Bulletin, which was Australia's main newspaper. But he wrote 35 books over a period of 20 years, and here they are. This is from my collection. Um, I've done a bit of a... Uh, documentation because in the Louis Beck Society we're all trying to get um, books, first editions, which are really hard to come by now, so I've done up a little sheet so that when I find one that I've already got, I buy it anyway and then I'll, I'll sell it to someone from the Society so that we build up a bit of a collection because the, the first editions now can be anywhere from $150 to $500. It just depends which one. So they're my collection of Louis Beck first editions at home. So I've got pretty much, I think I'm only missing one. In one of the books, that's his um, autograph, Louis Beck. He had a very clear handwriting. That's one of the things that Christopher Spice has picked up uh, while he's been um, going through reams and reams of correspondence for Louis to his mother, Louis to other people in the family. His writing was extremely clear and he rarely um, made mistakes. So... That's, um, that's interesting. So he commenced when he was 40 years old writing. And the first book that he wrote of um, a collection was by Reef and Palm. And it's a collection of short stories from his adventures. It was published in London. It was reprinted four times. And I think it's been translated in a couple of different languages. That's the, the inside cover of it. That's my book. And then, of course, that's what's on the headstone. So this is his headstone. When I, when I discovered it, there were letters missing and um, it was in a pretty bad state. The sandstone was all broken around it. Um, but it, we've got there that they inscribed it um, on his headstone. So he, he died without much money to his name. 
and his colleagues at the Bulletin all chipped in and paid for his funeral and his headstone and um, the, all of that. So now we've had it restored. The Louis Beck Society and the Waverley Cemetery, we all chipped in and we got it restored by one of the top stonemasons there and he also restored part of the sandstone that was um, damaged around the, the side. So that's another initiative that we've, we've ticked off the box, ticked off the list. So one of the big questions that everyone sort of asks, and at the beginning, a lot of people thought that it was just fact that he wrote about, but in fact, it's a combination of fiction because as I said before, he, he didn't go to Tahiti, um, but he wrote about it. So he met people who told, told stories like he did, other storytellers, and he would have taken it in and thought, oh, that sounds interesting, I'll add it to my story. And uh, so there's various reports of how much is fact and how much is fiction. I personally would say 70% fact, 30% fiction. Others would maybe say 50-50. Others would say 90-10. It just depends. Um, we can probably do an analysis at some stage later on, but it's not all fact. He enhances his stories, like most authors, to make them sound interesting and, uh, and exciting and all that sort of stuff. So he wrote about pirates, blackbirders. He wrote a book about bully Hayes. Stowaways, smugglers, castaways, mutineers. He wrote a book about the bounty in collaboration with Walter Jeffrey. And cannibals, because there were still cannibals in the South Pacific um, until, you know, the early 20th century, really, in places like the Marquesas and the Fijians had pretty, pretty bad cannibals. They, they were after the ships that took the sandalwood um, away from the Isle of Pines, and they would wait for the ship to be loaded with the sandalwood, and they'd attack the ship, and everyone aboard would be, you know, no one to hear from them again. So there was a famous ship, the Star, that there was, um, he was a relative of Captain um, Samuel Pinder Orsman, uh, Pinder Henry from Tahiti. So that's the inside of one of the books, um, which is actually one I'll talk about in a second. But William Henry Bully Hayes was an American. That's the only known photo that we've got of him. Um, he had a terrible reputation. Various reports uh, say very different things, but we'll probably never really know the truth. But he was feared and he met a, an untimely death. Um, again, reports of that are, are varied, but he met, um, Louis met him when he was 18 and it was all exciting. The Leonora was a most beautiful ship. There it is. And Louis got given the job of being the supercargo. So the supercargo is the, the person who does a bit of everything loads the food, buys the food when they arrive on an island, pays the staff, um, like a manager. Supercardo is like a manager. This is from his book on Bully Hayes, um, which is actually, uh, two, this is from a few years ago. It's, a two, it's $200 now. Most of the first edition books are almost impossible to find. Or if they are, they're in pretty bad condition and they're around $150 to $500. So that's the book that he wrote on Bully Hayes. So if anyone's been to Akaroa, I discovered this last year, there's a, um, and I have gone there and I've walked right past it because I was doing other things, but there is a, a restaurant and bar in Akaroa called Bully Hayes and um, there was a, a New Zealand historian who put them on the spot and said that they should close down or change their name because, you know, it's not a great idea to promote Bully Hayes and they, there was various correspondence back and forth, and I, and I, I read it all, and um, they've kept the name Bully Hayes. 
and they, they're obviously, there's a reason for that. They think that it's, it's well, he's notorious, you know, that attracts people, and it was established in 1995, and they haven't changed the name since, although I haven't looked in the last couple of days, but I think that they're still operating under the name Bully Hose. So, Louis lived abroad between 1896 and 1908 after he'd done most of his travelling. He lived in England for a few years. He lived in Ireland for a couple too. He was in Jamaica for maybe six months, I think. France for three, three years. And England again in 1907. But he was in New Zealand in summer of 1908 and between 1910 and 1911. And the reason for that is that he had two daughters who um, needed to be educated. So I'll talk about them in a second. I'll talk about his family in a second, just to give you a bit of a, a holistic um, picture of Louis Beck. Um, we've talked about him as the writer. We'll talk about him and his, his life, um, his personal life. So he went, he got around. Um, his last wife, Fanny Sabina, she was English, so they lived in England for quite a while. That's him in his rattan chair in um, Jamaica. There's a whole series of the Jamaica photos that are available from the National Library of Australia website. They're all amazing. These are some of the ships that he travelled on. Uh, this is the Monowai. This would have, was one of the ships that he travelled on from Sydney to London. And the Mahino, they're both very well-known ships that were going back and forth, uh, steamships. Okay, so Louis Beck and Love. So he was a good-looking guy. He had quite a lot of kids. So the first child that we know of, because there's a death notice in the Sydney Morning Herald, is of Mercedes Dol Dolores Guadalupe, and she died young in Guam. We don't know if she was born in Guam. We haven't been able to find a birth certificate, but she definitely died there, and she was um, seven or eight. Nalea Tikena was his first official wife. She was from the Ellis Islands, which is Tuvalu now. There's a marriage certificate. Um, we can't see that there are any children, but that doesn't mean that there weren't. Um, and we don't know what happened to her. We think that she might have died young. She might have died in childbirth. I mean, that's, that was pretty common back then. His, um, so we, th he, we think that she died because then he officially married Elizabeth Mournsell, who was also from Port Macquarie. She was actually born on a ship around the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and they had uh, three children together. They had two boys, Eugene, Louis, and Gerald. So they're all born in, those, the boys are born in Sydney. And Nora was born in Townsville. And the boys died young. They both had problems. Um, one of them had a bit of an accident. And Nora was the only one that survived. And she lived till quite a, an old age. And we know that she died in Portugal but we haven't been able to find out a lot more about that. But she was quoted in a couple of newspapers as being a, a, a famous linguist, and apparently she was in St. Petersburg at some stage um, doing some work there. The last uh, wife was Sabina Fanny Long, so Betty Mournsall wanted to divorce him, and eventually um, he married Fanny Sabina Long, who was his secretary. And he had two daughters with Fanny, Alrima and Nia. So Alrima was known as Rima, so they both got Polynesian names. And Nia, born a year apart, both um, with very different types of lives. And they're both buried at the Barrel General Cemetery in New South Wales, which is about, I don't know, 100 kilometres south of Sydney. I've discovered their graves. 
and Alrema became a famous surfer. She was one of Australia's first surfers. That's her claim to fame. So that's a photo of Sabina looking very angelic in one of those typical studio shots of the, of the period. She was quite attractive. And we don't know how many other women he had in his life that we, we may never find out about or how many other children that he might have had. But there were definitely more children than what we know of. I'm pretty sure of that. This is a photo of um, Alrema at um, Palm Beach, where she lived. She was married three times, no children, and she um, loved the beach. And I think she must have heard her father talking about surfing in the islands. And the, there's a publication, um, the Palm Beach, Palm, Palm Beach Surf Life Saving Association's got a, a magazine that they um, distribute and they've written quite a lot about Arima and we cover her in our newsletters as well. We do, we were doing two newsletters a year in the Beck Society but we're down to one now because they just take so much time. But she was a bit of ahead of her time. I mean, she was the only woman, she was petite as well, like she wasn't really um, a big, big lady but she was very muscly and this guy here, she eventually married him, he was her third, third husband. Okay, so it, between about 1909 and 1913, Louis Maney lived and worked in Sydney. He had various jobs. He moved around a lot. He lived with his mother at one stage who'd, who'd moved to um, the CBD. And he worked at the Lands Department. And he, worked at the, he was a secretary for the Royal Geographic Society. I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute because that's a really important um, part of his life, becoming a fellow of the London Royal Geographic Society, which was not very common. Um, it was an honour for him to be given that and there was a reason for that. But he lived in New Zealand between 1908 and 1911, on and off, many trips, lived in Auckland. This is a book that he wrote, Pearl Divers of Rondacore Reef. And I recently discovered when I was looking for some New Zealand subject matter to include in my presentation, this book is actually based loosely on the Great Barrier Island murder in 1883. I don't know if anyone has heard of it, but it's, it's quite interesting. I've read a little bit about it. So there was a, a murder. There was a Captain Caffrey who was on a ship called the Sovereign of the Seas, and he wanted to marry Elizabeth Taylor. I fell in love with her, but her father didn't want him to marry her for whatever reason. Maybe he had some inside knowledge, I don't know. And um, she eventually married someone else. And then he met this guy, Henry Albert Penn, with his girlfriend, Grace Cleary. And anyway, the, the father got killed and it was all very well documented in different places. So we think that Louis Beck picked that story up and wrote his own sort of adaptation of it in this book, which has got an interesting um, picture. Yeah, so it's interesting, Great Barrier Island's only a very small island, but he uh, adapted it to, to his own book. So, um, in mid-April 1895, he started to go to New Zealand on and off on the Monawai, and he, he did various comings and goings. From May to September 1908, there's reports of Beck going to the Solomons for, for several months to engage in scientific and geographical work by the Royal Geographic Society. Um, and he never actually ended up going there, but there were, it was... Um, very, very reported in the media. There's about, I found at least 20 articles on him going there, um, and eventually someone else went instead of him, but 
but it was it was very reported in the all the papers, past articles, Wellington and Auckland. Um, in September 1908, he arrived in Wellington en route to take phonographic records of folk songs and lore of the South Seas. So that's interesting what they commissioned him to do. But he was based in New Zealand to be able to go to Fiji and all these places because it was just more central than Sydney. So the Royal Geographic Society. Okay. So in 1890, he was the Assistant Secretary to the New South Wales branch. That's um, from his biography. We know that. And we've got documentation to, to back that up. Um, 30th of March 1908, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Geographic Society of London. And that was odd because normally you become a member first and then you become a fellow later. But they obviously thought that he had enough reputation and that he um, enough um, knowledge to be able to be elected a fellow first, fellow of the London Society. And in 1910, he was elected of a member of the New South Wales Royal Geographic Society. So our biographer, Christopher Spicer, I quizzed him a little bit about this and I said, oh, you know, that's, that's interesting. Why would they appoint him to be a fellow of the London Royal Geographic Society? And he said, well, he had spoken to anthropologists and biologists. He was widely read and could refer to plants and animals by species and genus names. They didn't elect him a fellow of the R RGS for no reason. So that's a big deal. That's, um, I don't think I've read of any other Australian that's had had that type of um, honour in terms of being appointed a fellow first. These are some of the articles that I've found by going through papers past of um, his trips to the Solomons and his adventures, that well, what he was going to do for the RGS. And he um, was going to go to the Solomons for several months. Um, so this is between May and September 1908. And then he was back in Wellington, um, where they, they quoted him in the Wonga Nui Herald. Mr. Louis Beck, author and traveller, arrived by the Ionic today en route to the South Sea Islands. He informed a Post reporter that on behalf of the Royal Geographic Societies in London and Berlin and the anthropological societies of the same cities, he's to, be, he's to investigate and report on and take phonographic reports of the folk songs. So that's, that's a bit um, ahead, ahead of the time of that type of thing anyway. So this is from September 08. These are, are reports from him being in Wellington. You can find all of these um, on papers past. Again, another one from another paper, the Otago Times, 10, 10, two days later on the, on the 10th. And then he was back in Auckland um, on the 15th. And his daughters were at school there, so, um, and his wife was there waiting for him. And she travelled a lot with him too. In fact, his other wife, Bessie, she travelled with him as well to the islands, but she didn't really like it. She didn't like the heat and the, all that sort of stuff. And then I've got these reports that I found of um, August 1909 of Beck touring the North Island from the Wairapapa Daily Times and the Manawatu Standard. So he was touring the North Island, taking advantage of Hinemoa's crews to see outlying groups of islands. He arranged to accompany the vessel on her periodical inspection of the castaway depots. <laughs> so, um, Rima, Al Rima, and Nia attended Mel Murley Collegiate, which was um, set up by a lady called Mrs. Clayton in 1894, I think, something like that. And they went there for a, a little while. What we don't know is whether they actually boarded there or whether they lived with their mother um, nearby. Still looking into that. 
So that was a pretty impressive college, uh, uh, school. And what I discovered when I started researching a little bit about Mrs. Clayton, because she seemed to be a bit of a head of her time, is that she was married to this guy called Ma Captain Matthew Clayton. And um, he, his claim to fame, well, apart from being a captain of um, ships, was that he was a, a particularly good artist. And he was more known for his artists than, artistry than, than his trips, really. So there are a couple of the um, paintings that he did that I found just by going through some websites and stuff like that. So they were an interesting team, those two. So 18th of February, 1913, uh, Louis died in the York Hotel in King Street. And uh, he was living there. He, he's, the reports that we've got say that he was slumped over a manuscript. He was found dead, slumped over his manuscript. Um, the, the chambermaid found him. Um, and then his wife and he were separated at the time. It would have been extremely hard for anyone to live with someone like Louis, I think, because he was always um, wanting to, to leave. And, and when he was around, he was always writing. So. They'd been separated for a little while. So he died alone in his room in the York Hotel, which is sort of like in the middle of the CBD. If anyone knows Sydney, it's near the Grace Building. It's just across the road from there. So it's near Wynyard Station. So it says on his death certificate that he died of carcinoma of the pharynx and the palate, so cancer. And uh, we've got these death certificate. On, on. So the, the report that we had that explained a little bit about what happened to the Solomon Islands journey and all of that, it's explained in this, this report here of him dying, the Poverty Bay Herald. Writing of the death of Louis Beck, about four years ago, Beck returned to Australia with the intention of visiting the Solomons in the interests of the Royal Geographic Society for the purpose of collecting folklore and securing records of the curious chants of the South Sea natives. Owing to some disagreement with another member of the party, Beck abandoned the idea and visited Fiji and New Zealand. He stayed about 12 months in New Zealand and about 18 months ago returned to Sydney. Later, he fell into bad health and became an inmate of a private hospital. He somewhat recovered and for some time resided at the York Hotel. So he died alone. Um, he had very little money to his name. He made a decision early on in his writings to sell his books outright rather than get royalties. So that was a pretty critical decision um, and it meant that you know, the money was great when he got it, but it didn't last very long. And we've got um, artifacts that he brought back from Newey in particular that are at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, which is moving to Parramatta, I think. And we've got correspondence um, from him to the Powerhouse Museum, which back then was called the MAAS, the Museum of Applied Arts and Science, um, wanting to sell his collection of artefacts because he needed the money. I'm sure he probably would have liked to have kept them for his daughters and, and whatever, but he, he needed the money. So we've got, um, they didn't accept, but I think eventually they ended up going there anyway. So yeah, he was always scrounging around, a bit like Henry Lawson, who, was always, you know, pretty poor and, and, and miserable. And so we've got Louis Beck here again um, on a beautiful day at Waverley Cemetery, buried by his Bulletin colleagues. A lot of them are buried at um, Waverley as well. Archibald, 
is buried at, at Waverley. Um, Ernest Favenc, who was a friend of Louise, who um, introduced him to the people at the Bulletin because he was having a drink with him one day at a pub near Wynyard Station and he heard Louis talking about his, one of his stories of the Pacific and said to Louis, you should go and um, you should publish some stories, write some stories and get them published. And Louis hadn't really thought of it before and that put the idea in his head and they walked off to the Bulletin office together apparently and that's when it all started. The, the book writing and the short stories and, and so forth. So Henry Lawson, um, he's probably much more famous and well-known than Louis Beck. And he's also buried at Waverley Cemetery in a very unassuming grave. I, I was actually quite surprised when I found it. And we do have, um, I'm a friend of Waverley Cemetery. We're a little group of people that look after the cemetery and do various um, things there like weeding and restoring graves, restoring headstones. Um, and we have a little a ceremony on the anniversary of Lawson's death where we read a po one of us reads a poem and we, we invite people to come and have a look and I'd like to think that eventually we can do that for Louis Beck as well. So they were friends and on, on the death of Louis Beck, um, Henry Lawson wrote a poem which is published in one of his books. So we've got that on, um, I think we put that in one of our newsletters. So a nice poem by Lawson on on Louis Beck. So um, I was pretty much alone looking after the grave for 30 years or something like that. And I, was, I kept desperately trying to find Beck, mem Beck family members to not really look after the grave, but just to get them interested in Louis Beck, putting him on the map, because he's an underestimated Australian author that needs to be more well known. And eventually I, I found a couple of members um, through different uh, ways. And we decided on the 16th of March to form a society, Louis Beck Society. So Anna is the lady that I, I met. She put an ad in the Sydney Morning Herald looking for Beck relatives for a family reunion in Townsville because she's descended from one of the other members of the family and they're based in Townsville. So I happened to look at it and I thought, well, I, I'm not, you know, it looks like she's a big descendant. So I started corresponding with her and now we've become really good friends. So she comes over once a year and we go to the grave and we weed it together and we go and on some of Louis, Louis Beck's footsteps, maybe some pubs or things that he did. He lived in Balmain and we went to the observant, uh, we went to Fort Street Model High School once and had a look around there and uh, try to imagine what it would have been like for him to go to school and sit still in a classroom for, for more than 10 minutes. <laughs> So this is, the, this is the group of members that we started off with in Port Macquarie. Um, Glenn Dick, he's the president. He's a local from Walka, which is not far. He's a very, very famous artist. Um, he does sort of abstract stuff of um, colonial Australia. David Borden, um, who does all the secretarial, he's the treasurer and the secretary. Um, David Martin, who's a um, Port Macquarie um, um, historian. He's actually written quite a lot of books about Port Macquarie with old photos and stuff like that, and then various other people. So we're up to about 25 now, I think. We've got two New Zealand members. We've got two American members of the society. Um, and you don't need to do anything. You just sort of pay whatever it is, $15 a year, and you get the newsletter that we produce, and you're informed of what we're doing. 
So there you go. So I hope you enjoyed the presentation on Louis Beck. Hope you know a little bit more about him. Um, Allegra, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's Heritage Talk. You can book to attend one of our upcoming talks by heading to our website at www.aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and searching for events. Some of our previous talks can be found on our channels on YouTube and SoundCloud and you can discover even more about our heritage and research collections by clicking on the Kura shortcut in our heritage menu on our homepage. Until next time, mate wa.